Hello everyone, welcome back to the Let the Dead Bury Their Own Dead podcast. I'm your host, Alex Harris. Uh, So this is the second part in our three-part series on discipleship, the metamorphosis of discipleship. So this talks about uh, the transference uh, at baptism from cold religion to transfiguration and the difference between those. So in our first part, we talked about Uh, about understanding that the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field. So you have to take the map of scripture and go hunting for it with everything you've got. And then once you've begun to find it, you dedicate yourself wholly to the Lord and you begin the process that allows you to participate in the divine nature. Now we're going to begin on the metamorphosis of discipleship and begin to see what it looks like to participate in that divine nature and the process God's going to take us through whenever we really commit to becoming like Christ. So, let's begin. Abba, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, God, I pray that your will would be done in this podcast, uh, and that you'd put the words in my mouth to be able to say what you want me to say. Amen. Now, for teaching purposes of this lesson, I want you to assume that this hasn't happened to you yet. I'm sure there's some of you, especially the elders that I'll send this to, to review it and sharpen it, that this certainly has happened. Uh, But I want you to, for sake of assumption, assume it hasn't, because those of you that it has happened to, uh, you'll be able to withstand all of this and, and know that, know from the bottom of your heart that this is you. But listen as if you're baptized into the name of God and haven't yet given 100% to Him. The chances are, unless you're devoted your life to full-time ministry and can successfully teach the gospel from your heart, not just your head, you are but a small candlelight where a firestorm tornado should be. If you don't listen with humility, the intention to learn and obey, you have no hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ is useless to you. If you agree to listen in this humility way, say now, I agree. So, let us begin. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, so your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you have not seen him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy for your receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now this is important. A lot of people like to say that salvation begins whenever you say magic words or whenever you do a thought exercise about giving your life to Christ. No. Salvation is the goal of your faith. It's a process. So this process that you, disciples-to-be, will go through all your lives is going to have your soul having a worldliness purged out of it so that you bear a soul that's identical to Jesus Christ. This inward process will strip your attachment of anything associated to this world's sandcastle-building competition. 
shiny and luxurious things, material wealth and hoarding, hardness of heart, envy, falsehood, the love of anything, including family, more than Jesus Christ. In the end, salvation will come when He is your Lord and you do everything that the Father commands. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man doesn't think he'll receive anything from the Lord, so he's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who's rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now notice, in all of these passages I've read to you, how you're going to be refined like fire, uh, refined like gold in a fiery furnace, that you're going to endure persecution from the enemy and have to use perseverance to to become uh, the, the goal of your salvation, that it's not optional, and it's certainly, certainly not a maybe. You're guaranteed to have to persevere for the name of Jesus Christ, because the thing is, If you're a threat to Satan by actually doing what Jesus commands you to do, you will be attacked. And if you're not attacked, you're not a threat to Satan because you don't do what Jesus commands. Now, right now, many of you claim to have Christ but are found dead in his sight. This requires repentance or you will die in your sin. There's one sin Jesus couldn't tolerate above all else. Hypocrisy. Now, my dear children, I write this to you so you won't sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. We know that we've come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. But anyone who obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, if we're found to be walking in the world, which is success for ourselves instead of saving souls and teaching, we won't enter the kingdom. This, like all sin, can be forgiven. Remember when the flesh controlled you at first? This is no different. We can't change on our own. We must beg God to change us and strengthen us in our weakness. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we haven't sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word has no place in our lives. Don't give lip service in your armchair. Show him that you care. Now, quote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Quote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. If this truly is your heart and you really want to call Jesus Lord above all, then he promises he will show you the Father. 
Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you aren't my own. Rather, it's the Father living inside of me who does his own work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or at least believe the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. Even he will do greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father and will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything, anything in my name, and I will do it. Don't just be a candle with a flame as small as possible. Don't be salt that loses its saltiness. Come home for real. Home isn't on earth. It's not in nice things. It's in the Father's embrace when you make a new convert of a poor man. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, then it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. Remember, the words that I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you too. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours too. They'll treat you this way because of my name, for they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they wouldn't be guilty of any sin. Now, however, that they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen my miracles, yet they've hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what's written in the law. They hated me without reason. Now, the world is going to hate you if you're doing this right, especially the wealthy worldly Christians. To care about achievement here on earth and not the commands of God describes most of who are left in the megachurches. Yet, Jesus says much, much differently. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, uh, one of the most contentious verses I've ever encountered among um, people who think the law was nailed. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, part of walking how Jesus walked is keeping the Torah. Jesus was called rabbi, a teacher of the law of Moses. If we walk as he walked, we also fulfill this, you know, except for circumcision and sacrifice, new covenant, and he was the Lamb of God. 
Those Pharisees Jesus spoke against are like the lukewarm and dead, quote, believers today. They preach truth, but they don't practice a lick of it. They'll go to hell because of their insides not matching their outsides. I say this insofar as to be unrepentant and idle in the faith. Not even that Paul could attain self uh, mm, sinlessness in this life. In short, this is the whole of discipleship. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. If you miss this in your life, you will be left behind. Now, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord, are there only a few who are going to be saved? And Jesus said, Make every single effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and won't be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he'll answer, I don't know you or where you came from. And then you'll say, We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yachov and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come from the east, west, north, and south and take their places at the feast of the kingdom. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Receiving the call to make disciples doesn't require a seminary, a doctorate, or any certificate of men. These words are plainly understood in any translation, and the Holy Spirit will assist in guiding you into all truth and understanding. Unless you become like a child, you'll never get it. Let's go to Matthew 18, where he talks about this very thing. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a little child and had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child in this, my name, welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones that believes in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter real life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter the real life maimed with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Don't let the world entice you into working for its approval. Those who go above and beyond to care for the poor are God's disciples. 
You've all heard the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself, a lot like the Talmud, and said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man who was going down from Yerushalim to Jericho fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him passing by also on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Then he went to him, bandaged his wounds, and poured on him oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The experts of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go, you, do likewise. Now this, this is your full-time job. If you say to God, Lord, I'm willing, then God will put these people in your path. I guarantee it to you. After the hypocrites were humbled by Jesus' answer to marriage and the resurrection, then they asked their first genuine and humble question. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given a good answer to this previous question. He asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, he answered, is this, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Adonai is one. Love Adonai, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, Well, you, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The whole lesson is about a change that's going to take place in you soon. By it, you're not just going to think and say that you love the Lord, your God, but you're going to obey His commands with that love. There's a word used in the New Testament, and I'm going to give three examples of it to describe this process. It's, it's Greek. It's called metamorphu. It's in Strong's Concordance 3339. It means to transform, to change, or to transfigure. This Greek word is used in three passages that seem different, but all are tied together by this one choice word. First, we'll go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. But when everyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being, there's that word, transformed into His likeness being metamorphu into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Now, the next usage of this is going to be in Mark chapter 9. And this one may surprise you because first we're talking about the transformation that occurs in us by the Spirit of the Lord. But next, we're going to talk about the same word being used for Jesus' transformation. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high place where they were all alone. And he was, there's that word, transfigured, metamorpho, before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then finally, I'll give the third example, which is again about our metamorphosis in the spirit. This is Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, metamorpho, by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's really the key to this. I mean, the same way that we started looking for the treasure using the map of Scripture, we also have the key to the transformation of participating in the divine nature. Again, by just as he says, immerse them in in baptism, immerse them in Jesus. We immerse ourselves in Scripture. And when our minds are immersed in Scripture, we begin to live it out. And when we confront ourselves with a choice, we say, I know what I should do based on Scripture. I know what my nature says to do. And then we get to start making the right choices by being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then as we do this, more and more and more under perseverance were then refined like fire and voila you've got somebody who's got a little sin in him still needs to confess and repent but their soul's basically identical to jesus christ now this is what it means to mature and be born again it's not just a sentiment when we say i'm not who i used to be back to second corinthians this time we're in chapter five over at verse 16 So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded even Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the word to himself the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As for God's fellow workers, we As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you. In the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. To be transformed is for the understanding of our eternal place in the kingdom of heaven to become how we walk in our daily life, how we discern and judge the will of God. Ephesians 4, 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. Speaking truthfully isn't always easy. Many times, speaking the truth will mean that you're rejected, called judgmental, and accused of breaking the peace. Telling the truth is hard, and it's natural to be afraid of the consequences. But we have hope. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Because those who are led by the Spirit are of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. All of this is contingent, that you walk the walk and share in his sufferings. That's what I don't see a lot of today. That's why this message is necessary. Lots of people have religion. Lots of people have thought exercises about what the Bible means, but not many people go out and do it. Not many people look like Christ. Now, being children of God, emissaries of the truth, it'll be like being an alien to the world. Once you were a citizen of the world where you were born in the flesh and alienated from the Spirit in heaven, but now you are the opposite. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. And by the way, let me just say, I get called a Judaizer all the freaking time. That means that those foundations of the prophets and the apostles, those are my foundations. And the household of God, which is the Jews, that's my household. So don't tell me I'm not a son of Abraham. Don't tell me that for keeping the real Sabbath, that I'm somehow a Judaizer. Oh man, I could rant for days on that. Now let me get back. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And to him, you are too being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This citizenship wasn't free. Any suffering on behalf of him is to our joy. He paid for a literal transfiguration to take place inside of you, giving you power, not passivity, love, not fear. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, Golgotha. Here, they crucified him with two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened up on the cross. It read, Yeshua of Nazari, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Yeshua was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Don't write King of the Jews, but he just claimed it. So Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Yeshua, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. 
This garment was seamless, woven in one piece, top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to each other. Just decide by Purim who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. And near the cross of Yeshua stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Yeshua saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. To the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. And later, knowing that all of it was now completed, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Yeshua said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Yeshua's lips. When he'd received the drink, Yeshua said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He gave up everything for us, and he demands nothing less. Until you do, also, salvation is just a word, not a finished reality. Remember the beginning of your journey? Just keep it in mind, and then tell me, what does this mean? We're going to Matthew chapter 3, about baptism. When Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What does baptism mean for us? It means that you've died. It means you've come out of the world and dedicate your whole life to becoming a clone of Jesus. It means that as of now, this world is one big hologram, one big test of suffering for the truth to refine your soul like that of gold in a furnace. Now we're going to John chapter 3, and this will be the last bit of scripture. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform these miraculous signs that you're doing if God weren't with them. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Well, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things. I tell you this truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify what we've seen. But still, you people don't accept our testimony. 
and I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe, how then would you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake into the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he hasn't believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men still loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and won't come into the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly what he has done has been done through God. Welcome to real life. Welcome to the big leagues. Amen and amen from everlasting to everlasting.